Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. So thank you very much, Kate, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Great, Grace. There's an interview we've been waiting for a little while, and I know you've been very, very busy. Um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your background and uh, what you do at the moment? Oh, at the moment, I run around talking about donuts. <laughs> but I never imagined that would be what I would be doing in my late 40s. Um, about my background, well, I was a teenager of the 1980s. So along with Duran Duran and Michael Jackson, I saw a famine in Ethiopia on the TV in the mid 80s. And that had a huge impact on me, as I know it did many people of my generation. I remember the whole opening up in the ozone layer. I remember the first time on the TV news, they said there's something called the greenhouse effect. And by the end of the 80s, when I was off to go to university, I just I just wanted to help work on these things. I wanted to help fix them. And so I thought if I study economics, I will have this language, the mother tongue of policy, I'll be able to make a difference. So off I skipped to study economics and immerse myself so much at first in the theories that I didn't notice for a while that there was something fundamentally wrong. It took me a while. But I eventually walked away from the theoretical economics because I was frustrated by it. I immersed myself in the real world economy. So I spent three years working in the villages of Zanzibar. I spent four years on a very different island working in Manhattan at the United Nations Development Programme's Human Development Report, the report that every year judges countries not on the basis of their economic development, but on the basis of their human outcomes. Then I spent over a decade at Oxfam, which I loved working in the research team there. And eventually I realized this was about 20 years of my career. And I'd spent the first 20 years of my career trying to make visible all those things that are left largely invisible in mainstream economics, like the unpaid, pairing, uh, the unpaid caring work of women, like uh, workers exploited down the end of global supply chains, like the impacts of global inequality, the impacts of climate change, and that this wasn't just an environmental issue, it's a social justice issue. So I decided the best thing I could do, rather than always trying to get a view into mainstream economics, was to be part of the movement starting to rewrite economics. And I think that's, that took off after the financial crisis a decade ago. So I left my lovely job at Oxfam and started to write a book based on all the economics I had never been taught. And I discovered the most amazing ideas that have been around some of them for hundreds of years in ecological economics and feminist complexity, institutional, behavioral economics. I wanted to bring them together and make them dance on the same page and become the beginnings of a new economics that's fit for the 21st century. And somewhere in that process, I drew a picture that looked a bit like a donut and, and, and yeah, the rest was history. Great. Does economics matter? I mean, how much does it matter? I mean, you've got economists clearly and people talk about economic growth and people talk about the economy the whole time. And as you say, there's a whole uh, uh, cast of uh, uh, economists and people who study economics. What impact does that have? Mm. Economics really matters because yeah, there is, you know, specialist economic advisors. And by the way, when the economist comes in the room, there is a certain air of authority that our economists carry with them. 
you know, like the US president has a council of economic advisors who he keeps very close. He also has a council of scientific advisors, but no one's really ever heard of them. So the economists have this special ear of the president of the prime minister. But also, if you think about our parliaments, many politicians will have studied a little bit of economics. You know, if I if when I go into rooms, I say, who here has ever studied economics? A lot of people put up their hand. They've just studied Econ 101, as it's called. So people study a little bit of economics and then go off and become politicians or business leaders or community leaders or lawyers or doctors or journalists and take them that little bit of economics, which is that becomes the public narrative of what the economy is and how it works and who we are and what economic success looks like. So. The first course in economics, I believe, is the most important one because it shapes the public narrative. And even if people have never studied economics, we're swimming in its language all the time. You see on you know, the page of the newspaper, oh, the economy is coming back to health because growth rates picked up 0.5 percent. Or we hear it in the financial news and reports from companies. So there's this language of implicit in it of what economic success is that we all get used to. And we're so immersed in it, sometimes we don't even spot it. We don't spot that we're no longer called citizens, but customers. Uh, We don't spot that there's a market mentality creeping into some of our public services. There is an economic language is is infiltrating many other areas of social life where it never used to be. So I think it's really important that everybody recognise that's happening and decide where they want to come down on that, whether they think it's the right thing or not the right thing. I think it's very important for everyone to feel that they can be empowered to be part of economic conversation absolutely absolutely and i guess the the the, the whole question of the environment is, is is a tricky one when it comes to economics and I, i'd be interested in getting your perspective on that and clearly key ideas at the heart of the donut as well but just maybe before we talk about that uh, i just always like to set the scene a little bit i'm just wondering what's what are, what are a couple of the biggest environmental concerns in your mind at the moment well it's these headlines of the last couple of weeks isn't it i mean the IPCC report that came out um, just almost a month ago saying we have around 12 years to save ourselves from the worst impacts of climate change. The, the scientists are getting less uh, worried about being direct and bold and clear in their communication. And I, I know some of those scientists and you, know, you can see them think, How, what do we have to do? How do we need to word this to make the world actually respond and react? So I feel that very strongly. I'm also very struck by the report, the Living Planet report that just came out from WWF, uh, which says that since 1970, over 60% of the world's vertebrates, so all animals with spines, like mammals and fish and, uh, you know, all, all the living animals with spines have declined by 60%. Well, I was born in 1970. So that's my lifespan a 60% drop in the number of other living vertebrates on this planet. That is extraordinary. And I'm feeling both of those very hard-hitting statistics uh, very strongly, as I know many, many people around the world do. And I'm I'm mobilised by the fact that certainly in London there's kicking off something called Extinction Rebellion. People just saying, you know what, we just do not trust our government anymore we don't we don't feel like we should sit and wait we're going to mobilize and people are descending upon parliament square and doing mass peaceful non-violent sit-ins to have some kind of voice and and i know it's in response to these extreme statistics that don't seem to cause a flicker or a flinch 
in political discourse. Yeah, day in, day out, you just see one statistic after another. It's about the glaciers, about the insects, about it. It's a stunning, uh, yeah. shocking. Um, and and um, clearly, this is a lot about environmental limits, isn't it? About, you know, uh, and, and can we talk about the donut? Yeah. So I was always frustrated with economics because when I was a student, so in the early 1990s, there wasn't even the option to study what's called environmental economics. It just wasn't on offer. Now, most universities today, you can. But you know what? When you The first day of economics, welcome to economics, here's supply and demand. You get to see this little crisscross of the supply and demand curves, which puts the market center stage of economic thinking. And it means that any values that fall outside market prices, well, they get called externalities. And I just... <laughs> I think if we really think we're going to go well in the 21st century, describing the breakdown, the destruction of the living planet on which we depend as an environmental externality, I mean, that is an alarm signal that we are way off beam for dealing well with this. So I really always wanted to rebel against this idea that we should frame the living planet as an environmental externality. So let's go to the donut. The donut is a ridiculous sounding thing but it's a picture that looks like one of those donuts with a hole in the middle so imagine a donut with a hole in the middle and radiating out from that central point is humanity's use of earth's resources so in the hole in the middle of the donut that's a place where people are falling short that's where people don't have the resources they need to meet their needs for health and education and food and housing and energy and gender equality and political voice and social equity there's all those social dimensions that we need to lead a life of dignity and opportunity and community. So we want nobody left in the hole of the donut, enough resources for all to get into that donut itself. But just as a donut has an inner hole, it also has an outer ring. And we cannot use Earth's resources to the extent that we push ourselves beyond the outer ring of the donut over what I call an ecological ceiling because there we put so much pressure on Earth's life-supporting systems that we begin to kick them out of balance. We cause climate breakdown. We acidify the oceans. We create a hole in the ozone layer, uh, air pollution, chemical pollution, excessive fertilizers flowing through soils and into lakes and rivers, converting too much land, massive biodiversity loss. And these ecological life-supporting systems, they're known as the planetary boundaries. They were drawn up by a group of around 30 leading earth system scientists about a decade ago who said, we think these are the critical nine life supporting systems that hold this planet in the incredible benevolent and resilient space she's been in for the last 11,000 years. It's what we know as home sweet home of planet earth. We would be crazy to kick ourselves out of that space. So when you put those two ideas together, nobody left in the hole falling short on uh, essential human needs, but Without overshooting our pressure on Earth's life-supporting systems, you get the idea that we need to live in between those two in the donut itself. And the simplest way I can put it is it's, it's a compass, a donut-shaped compass, that aims to meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. And I offer it up as a compass for human prosperity in the 21st century. I mean, this, to me, this is the goal of what human progress is this century. Well, it's a brilliant uh, uh, concept. It's a brilliant idea and brings together so many different other uh, really important ideas. And I, I guess at the heart of it is this connection also between uh, individual and human well-being and uh, standards and the environment as well. Exactly. And if I can jump in. So I think this century we're going to wake up and we're going to 
recognize a fundamental connection between human bodily health and well-being and planetary bodily health and well-being. And just as every kid who goes to school always learns about the basics of human biology, you know, one heart, two lungs, one liver, two kidneys, you have a digestive system, a respiratory system, a nervous system, a skeletal system, and they all need to be in good health and work together. Children have the right to learn the very same ideas about the planetary body. We have a climate system. We have a freshwater system. We have an ozone layer protecting us overhead. We have ecosystems. And we need to learn about that health as well and fundamentally recognize that our health and well-being profoundly depends upon the health and well-being of the planet. And just to add that, so I described the donut. If I told you where we are now, well, we are both falling short on that social story millions, indeed billions of people who cannot meet their most basic needs, whether it's to food or water or health or electricity or housing. But we're also overshooting at least four of these planetary boundaries. We're overshooting on climate change. We're overshooting on fertilizer use, on massive biodiversity loss and on converting too much land for human use. So the state of humanity on our planetary home at, the, at this moment, these early days of the 21st century, we are out of balance on both sides and we have a completely different development project than any generation that preceded us because we're the first generation to see that we need to simultaneously eliminate human deprivation at the same time as coming back within planetary boundaries and no generation before us has ever tried to do this. And to me, that's an extraordinary, overwhelming challenge. It's also the most incredible opportunity, whether you are an economist, we need totally new economic thinking, or whether you're a politician, we need new policies and ambition, or whether you're a business leader, 21st century businesses just need to be quite different from what they were in the 20th century, because the goal has changed and the, the legitimacy, the purpose and the legitimacy of your enterprise has totally changed. Absolutely. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes and aims to break the link between natural resources, conflict and corruption. From its first campaign, which shut down the Camer Rouge's illegal logging industry, to Blood Diamonds, anonymous companies, the brutal killings of environmental activists, Global Witness's hard-hitting investigations and tenacious advocacy galvanise global change. Global Witness doesn't just track and expose corruption. It works to transform the systems that allow corruption to flourish. Find out more at globalwitness.org. Absolutely. It's really captured people's attention, Kate, the, the donut. And I, I know it's been tremendously successful. And, and particularly when you consider, uh, well, it's an economics book as well. Yes. I mean, did you expect this? And I'm just wondering, have you any thoughts on why these ideas are proving so popular? And I was going to also sneak in another one, just have there been any um, not so uh, uh, pleasant uh, responses, maybe, maybe from eco economists or but from the, from, from the, the, the profession. But I, I'm more interested, I guess, in just what you think here because it's it, you've touched on something quite deep i think so it was back in uh, 2010 when i first saw this diagram of the planetary boundaries that the earth system scientists had drawn and it was a circle with these red lines radiating out over the edge we were own overshoot and i thought okay we may be an ecological overshoot but we've also got social shortfall and so i drew a circle within their circle and when I first showed this to some, well, first of all, I actually, to be honest, I stuck it in the bottom drawer of my desk. I thought, well, I like that. But, you know, who's going to take that seriously? I literally left it in the bottom drawer of my desk for six months and occasionally showed it to people. And they said, oh, they, yeah, that's good. That's good. Do something with that. 
one day when I showed it to one of these earth system scientists, he said, that's the diagram we've been missing all along because it puts people now in relation to these planetary boundaries. And it's not a circle, it's a donut. So just to be clear for his, for posterity's sake, I wasn't the one who gave it such a silly name. It was him, Tim Lenton, <laughs> ocean scientist. Too late now, but, Kate. <laughs> but, but the name stuck. Yes. The name stuck. And so who came at me? First of all, and I'm very ashamed, you know, doctors came at me and said, look, we love this concept. It connects human health to planetary health. But really, did you have to call it a donut? Don't you know how bad they are? And I said, yes, but this is the one donut that turns out to be good for us. And I've found that so many people have responded positively to it, partly because it's so silly. I mean, these topics can be incredibly depressing, incredibly uh, serious and weighty. And that doesn't draw people in. So if you can match that with something that's playful and visual and a little bit silly, first of all, it, it makes it accessible. I mean, a title of a book called Donut Economics it's just zinging out to people, you will understand this. It's got a silly title. It's accessible. But also what I've loved and I just didn't anticipate is by giving it such a silly name. OK, in the process, I just lost any gravitas. That's fine. <laughs> but what it's done is really invited other people to get playful. So just the playfulness, the response of people, whether it's on Twitter or on other social media, uh, for example, tomorrow in Cornwall, um, what, on November the 3rd, they're holding a donut hackathon day. They're going to create a Cornish donut to rival the Cornish pasty. And they're going to say, what would it take? What would it mean to scale this donut to make it relevant and specific to Cornwall? In Amsterdam, they held a donut D-Day in September and invited people to pitch their ideas of what would bring humanity into the donut. In fact, in the Netherlands, they're a little bit crazy there. They, they do really wacky things. Some people there made a pair of big cut-out glasses, like two big green donuts, one for each eye. And you, you cut them out, and you put them on your face, and then you, you write on them words or stick on pictures of the world you believe you'd see if we were living in the donut. And they sent me this very funny photo of a whole bunch of people lined up wearing these ridiculous green glasses. But I love it because it says, play, play with this, make it your own, pass it on. And so I, I I stumbled into this and I'm so lucky to have stumbled into this space of humor because I've realized it's such a fertile way of getting people involved and, and allowing people to make it their own and and get more deeply connected to an idea. Absolutely. And and just talking to you, just listening to you, I, I get the feeling that you 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 are optimistic. You have uh you you, you, you can see positivity, you can see change, you can see possibilities. How how do you how do you do that? Because you talked about this, you know, we've had the IPCC report. The, the scale of the, the the challenges we're facing are just you know unprecedented, as you say, and they're kind of unimaginable, really. And yet, in many ways, it's just uh, business as usual. Um, how, how do you keep optimistic? What 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 what's the root of this, Kate? Well, actually, I'm not optimistic. I'm very deliberately not optimistic. Um, I'm slaying that slightly playfully, but. People do often come up to me after I give a talk and say, oh, I love your optimism. And I say, oh, where was that? I, I don't remember being optimistic. In fact, I say, don't be an optimist if that makes you relax. You know, the people say, oh, we'll sort this out. Human ingenuity, technology. We've overcome things in the past. You'll see. We'll figure if optimism makes you go there, don't even think about it. Because we haven't got space for that kind of apathetic <laughs> hopefulness. But... On the same time, don't be a pessimist if that makes you give up. 
it's all too late. It's too big. It's too hard. We are too many. Uh, can't be overcome. The power is too strong. Well, if you say that's the case, then it will be self-fulfilling. Yes. If you say it's too late, then it is because we won't actually take action. So don't be an optimist if it makes you relax. Don't be a pessimist if it makes you give up. Be an activist in the literal sense of the word. Be active in whatever networks you're part of, whether you're a student, put your hand up and ask that difficult question about the outdated economics you're being taught. Or if you're a professor, dare to change the syllabus. Or if you're a CEO, get a vision. Or if you're the latest employee in a company, dare to ask, why are we not doing anything on sustainability? Or if you're a politician, <laughs> dare to dare to be worthy of this moment in time. So, and if you're a parent, Talk to your children, educate your children and, and transform the way you run your house. So I, I believe it's time to be active very much in the ways that each of us can be. So I'm not I'm not an optimist, but I do get hope and I get energy for sure from the many, many people I talk to, young and old, who are so mobilized when they see an idea that's actually about the world that we're for. And that's what the donut does. It shows us a picture of the world that we're for, where there's nobody falling short on essential needs, and we're living within the means of the planet. And then it opens up lots of questions. How do we get there? Of course, we don't yet know how we get there. But I get a lot of energy from seeing people already living this out, people already running enterprises, running organizations, transforming universities, transforming schools, changing their own lifestyles to try and be part of that. So I know I'm part of a really big network of people who are trying to make that future come about. And there's no certainty at all that it's going to come about. But I'm definitely committed to putting all my energy into making it as visible and irresistible as possible. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Now, there's seven key ideas, um, many, many ideas, but seven, I guess, key ways of thinking, uh, what you say, uh, for the 21st century as an economist in the 21st century at the heart of the donut. I won't have time, unfortunately, to go into all of those. I'm just wondering if we could single out a couple and, and, and maybe um, one or two that you think um, that we are making uh, good progress with. And, and maybe, um, and maybe firstly, actually, uh, a deeper question is, you know, wh wh which do you think are the most challenging? I mean, economics has been around for, for a couple of hundred years anyway, um, in, in various different ways. But um, has pretty been pretty traditional for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and although it's pitched at economics, it's actually about economies. So economics as a theory as taught in universities is one thing, but then there's economies as they're evolving, as they're being practiced by people who are doing pioneering things. And actually, I think 21st century economics is going to be practiced first and theorized later. So if I wanted to show you evidence of things happening, I wouldn't point to textbooks. I would definitely point to new economic practice that's out there running ahead of its time, um, which will later turn into theory, which will always be slow to catch up. But of all these seven ways, let me, so, okay, which one do I think is key? Um, I'm really inspired by Donella Meadows, uh, the great, one of the founders of systems thinking. And she always says, if you really want to get a high leverage point for change, change the goal of the system, change the goal of the thing you're working on. And so for me, the first chapter in my book is really, bam, let's go in with a big one, change the goal. Because the 20th century economy became uh, obsessed with endless GDP growth. And that became the goal. We hear it in the daily news, you know, as if, oh, the economy's picking up health, back to the economy because GDP is starting to grow again, quarter on quarter, as if just higher value of goods and stuff that were sold is progress. 
And so that goal needs challenging. And of course, there's not almost no politician today would stand up and say, yes, I think GDP is the right goal for the economy in the same way that they did last century. But we need to change it to something else. And that's why the donut is right there in chapter one. I offer this as a compass for the 21st century. And if somebody said to me, you know, in an, in an intervention with the G20 or with, I don't know, the big power brokers in the world, and you could show them one thing, what would you show them? I say, I show them the donut, because if I can change your goal of what you think progress looks like, then everything else follows that. So for me, change the goal is the big one. Some of the really key ones that are part of that and that we're starting to get there, let me think of a couple. Um, 20th century economics was dominated by a a portrait of humanity known as rational economic man. And it was very much an individual male, male because he didn't have dependents or children to look after, he, nothing of the care economy. It was all very economic and money-based. He dedicated to money, self-centered, endlessly calculating outcomes for himself, perfect foresight into the future. I mean, an absurd character. And there's just a really rich... Uh, new kind of economic thinking, whether it's behavioral economics or cognitive psychology that's saying, hang on, let's actually study ourselves. You know, we're, we're the most social of all the mammals. We're even more sociable than the naked mole rat when it comes to collaborating and cooperating with those beyond your next of kin. So we are not the me species. We're actually a we species. We deeply depend on each other and we give care. And we care not only about how much money we get and making the best bargain, we also care about what others think of us and being reciprocal and being respected and being included. And when you take that much richer view of humanity, then it starts to change what you think uh, good policy is. One very simple example is when you know teachers and nurses are often deeply offended when policymakers come in and think, well, we want to make you more efficient. So we're going to give you sort of performance related pay. We'll give you a bonus if you can see 10 percent more patients. And they'll turn on their heel and say, do you really think I work in this industry to try and make 10 percent more pay? Actually, I'm here to give care. You are tapping into completely the wrong kind of incentive system if you want to motivate me. So that's a good example of bringing rational economic man thinking into a community of workers who are motivated in a completely different way. But I think there's a lot of interesting work going on recognizing our sociable, complex, interdependent nature. Another space where I think there's progress being made is recognizing that we have to get away from the linear degenerative economy that takes Earth's resources, makes them into stuff we want, uses them for a while, and then throws them away. We need to create not a linear, but a circle or cyclical economy where resources are used again and again uh, waste from one process is food for the next. And there's just really interesting initiatives going on from the level of small individual companies saying, how can we reuse our resources and make sure that any waste from our process turns into a resource for the next, all the way up to cities like London and Amsterdam that are really taking on ambitions to say, what would it mean to say we are serious about the circular economy here in our city? So there's really interesting progress going on in those places. Great, great. Now, <clears throat> you talked about GDP, and I'm just interested in this question of economic growth. And I know one of your uh, points in the book is being agnostic about growth. But can we really be agnostic when growth is actually the engine that's literally driving the physical output of goods 
in the global economy. And it's literally what corporations are you know, trying to do, grow as much as possible. It's literally what, you know, all the countries virtually, I'm sure, that signed the Paris Agreement, they all want to grow the economy as fast as possible. Surely that is got to be the central problem. So you asked me earlier, uh, which of the seven ways was the one that I thought was toughest? And bingo, you've hit it. <laughs> and it's seventh in my book, because it, I wanted to set out everything else is this is what we're for. This is the new vision. And then I ended up saying, OK, now let's take on the really tough root challenge we have here. You said just now, and I know semi provocatively, you said, oh, but surely growth is the engine of the economy. I'm going to challenge that because people say that very often. I don't think growth is an engine. Growth is an outcome. Growth is just the increase in the value of goods and services sold. So that's not an engine. That's a result of an economy that is getting larger in terms of its market exchange. And I'd say actually growth isn't an engine, it's an addiction. What happened in the 20th century, back in the 1930s, brilliant American economist Simon Kuznets was asked by US Congress to come up with a single number by which to measure the output of American economy, because it seems bizarre to us, but before that they didn't have that. They could measure the output in terms of tons of agricultural production and tons of steel, but not as one number. And Kuznets did. He made this one number national income. It's what we now call GDP. He also produced it with a caveat and said, well, the welfare of a nation could scarcely be measured from this. But the caveat got tucked aside because we all know the temptations of a one number in terms of competition, one country against another, in terms of media reporting, the power of a stat. Our institutions throughout the 20th century, from the 1930s onwards, because these economies were growing, particularly high-income con- country economies were growing, had lots of cheap energy, lots of growing labor force, they were growing. And then growth got structured in as an expectation of endless growth into the systems of our economy, so that we now have economies that expect, demand, and depend upon endless growth, no matter how rich they already are. Right? We financially demand growth because our financial system, it's a design. There's nothing natural or immutable about it. It's designed to pursue the maximum rate of return, which means that any publicly traded company, if you ask a CEO or chief financial officer, they'll say, you know, we, we want to be more sustainable. We want to be more ethical. But every quarter we have to report to the markets and show that we have this holy trinity of growing sales, growing market share and growing profits because that's what the market's pinning us to. We have a financial system, again, it's just a design, where money is created by banks, commercial banks, issuing debt that bears interest. Well, that drives growth. We have a political system in which if you want to place a seat at the G20 you know, table of power and geopolitics, you've got to have a big GDP. It's a really crude metric, but that's how you get there. And if you're, one country stops growing while the others keep going, you may find yourself you know, booted out of the, the G20, replaced by Nigeria or Vietnam or whoever is emerging through. Governments want to raise tax rate, tax revenues, but they don't want to raise the tax rate. In fact, they want to cut the tax rate. So having a growing economy seems to be like a neat way of spanning that problem. And then we've had a century of consumer propaganda launched by fascinating backstory, uh, a man called Edward Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, He took his uncle's psychotherapy. He very, very cleverly turned it into retail therapy. And he realized that through advertising, through consumer propaganda, we could be convinced that we transform ourselves every time we buy something new, that that new car or that new jacket will make you admired or respected or desirable. And so we are 
financially and politically and socially structured to expect, demand and depend upon unending GDP growth. Now, if we just step away from the economy, that just we're so used to it, it seems so normal, this escalator that's always going up. But step away from that and let's look at nature. Nature's been thriving for nearly 3.8 billion years. Pretty good example to learn from if we want to stick around like that. Nothing in nature grows forever. Think of your children's feet. Think of a tree in the garden. Think of a flower. Things grow. And growth is this wonderful, healthy phase of life, this spurt, which is why we love to see our kids grow. We love to see our tree, our plants grow. But things grow and then they grow up. And, and it's only by doing so that they mature and they can come to thrive. Like, you know, my kids are literally about to turn 10 years old. They're growing taller very, very fast. But if they kept growing taller, they literally wouldn't be able to sit at the table with me because they would no longer belong. So in nature, things grow up until they fit, until they belong, and then they thrive. But we have an economic system that seems to think it can be the one system in the world in this delicately balanced biosphere of life that can keep aiming to grow forever. And to me, that's the ultimate 21st century existential economic question. How do we shift from economies that are addicted to growth to economies that actually can mature and thrive. Alert Conservation is an alliance of leading environmental researchers and thinkers committed to promoting cutting-edge conservation research and to galvanise public support to solve major, often neglected environmental issues. Alert publishes weekly blog posts as well as frequent press releases and high-impact videos to focus attention on the crucial conservation challenges we are all facing. Head to alert-conservation.org where you can find out more. Yes, absolutely. And there's no doubt that um, the, well, say proponents of growth or the various uh, voices, um, they tell a good story. It's been a dominant story. It's, it's succeeded so well. And, you know, in, in, in various forms, which has led to, I suppose, what they call the neoliberal uh, forces over the last 30 years, a very extreme form of market fundamentalism. But those ideas about efficiency and markets are very powerful. Do you get a sense that they are starting to lose some of their glamour? Yeah. And you have to understand, you know, you have to try and empathize with where the obsession with growth came from. And I think in the 20th century, there was a really strong correlation between growing GDP and increasing jobs, uh, you know, in the US and, and things were getting better as the economy grew. But now we know too much. We know far more about the, the negative impacts that's having on the living planet. So and many communities are questioning as, as people see, you know, uh, CEOs wage packets growing, but the median workers wage flat. For decades. So there's a gap opening up between the idea that what's good for the average GDP per capita is good for the actual real person. It's not true at all. I think there is a, a real search going on for a new vision of what well-being looks like. And, and I know that's a good part of why the donut has had such resonance with so many people, because it's about balance. If you think about you know, getting back within both of those boundaries of the donut, that's about finding balance. And guess what? That's the metaphor we also use to understand our own health. Do some exercise, but not too much. Drink water, not too much. Have oxygen, not too much. Have food, not too much. Enough, but not too much. It's about balance, and therein lies health. 
So I think this is going to be the profound metaphorical shift we make this century. In the last century, the idea with progress was growth. And in the 21st century, I think progress is going to be towards balance. That is what health now means. Yes, yes. Even the Sustainable Development Goals have a go- goal, have a goal for economic growth. Um, it's baked in to everything, as you say, that, that we're doing. Exactly. It's been it's in there, you know, under goal eight as this little Trojan horse of, oh, yes, of course, this will always come together with growth. And I and, and it shows that, that there's a desire for new goals. I mean, the, the, the social the social inside of the donut is absolutely based on the social priorities of the sustainable development goals. You could say the donut and the SDGs are like cousin concepts, but the SDGs have this commitment to growth. For all countries, you know, it says, you know, in the lowest or in the low income countries, at least seven percent. But growth for all. Everybody can have this. Um, so and it's it's to the high income countries that I, I point and pose this challenge. First and foremost, I absolutely believe lower income countries will and need to see a growing economy to meet the needs of all. But it's the high income countries that, that need to learn to grow up. And when I say growth agnostic, I I think the transformations we're going to see in coming years are so phenomenal. I I challenge anybody to tell me with certainty that GDP will keep going up even as we come back within planetary boundaries. But I equally challenge anybody to tell me that GDP will necessarily have to fall after all the transformations of energy systems and circular economy. And if we move to away from ownership to service systems and we, we bring back the commons and if we transform much of our lifestyles, I don't know whether GDP has to go up or down. And for me, the point is, Let's focus on the right metrics. Let's focus on meeting the needs of all people. And let's focus on coming back within planetary boundaries. And then we have to focus on unhooking our structural addiction to growth. Because if we are still structurally addicted to to growth through our institutions, it's going to be the Trojan horse that dominates the show. It's going to overpower and always win out over any other social and ecological values that we've set out for ourselves. So that's why I ended my book on come on, let's face up to these structural addictions we have. What would it even look like to start unhooking themselves, ourselves from them? And why is this not even discussed in economics classes? It's not even on the topics. Yes. Well, you make a very good point about um, the poorer people in the world. And I've just interviewed somebody who's uh, spent oh, 20 or 30 years working with uh, women who are trafficked in India. And what she realized was that uh, an essential part of the solution to to dealing with that that problem was to create some economic welfare, the the quality of the economic welfare of the the, the women and having them uh, creating work and creating a a, a work ecology and and, and something for them to do and and have a bit of uh, financial independence. And that was essential quality. And as you say, it's a very different picture, which we get from the when we look at the excess over obese consumption that we see in the developed world mm. and this is something i know that you, you recent research um looked at which was this question about countries which you could look at the degree to which they're within the donut and uh just wondering if we can talk a little bit about that so what does it mean to be in within the donut and are we making progress yeah, so a fantastic team of researchers at the University of Leeds, um, Dan O'Neill, Andrew Fanning, Will Lamb, Julia Steinberger, 
they took the donut concept that I'd made at the global scale and they said, hmm, what would it look like to actually downscale this to the national level? Because that's what, you know, every, every nation wants to say, well, where are we in this? So they took the concept, they looked for globally comparable data that could be used across countries and they created 150 national donuts. If anybody wants to see them, it's at a website called goodlife.leads.ac.uk and you can make comparisons of all the countries. What they found is that, uh, to me, it's no surprise, there are no countries, certainly out of these 150, that are currently living in the donut. They are, so at one end of the spectrum, you might have a country like Nepal, which hasn't overshot any planetary boundaries. It stayed within the ecological ceiling, but it's still falling far short on meeting all the needs of all of its people. At the other end of extreme, you've got a country like, guess what, the UK or the US or Australia or Canada or the Netherlands and Scandinavia, all of the rich countries you want to name, they're all there. They've mostly met the basic needs of all their people, but even some of them not, like the UK still has um, falling short on social equality because of high levels of inequality in the country, but largely meeting people's needs, way overshooting planetary boundaries, massively, because the calculation they did isn't just based on what's the environmental resource use going on for production within your country. It's based on what's the environmental resource use of everything that people consume in your country. So the, the environmental resources that go into all of the imports, all the laptops and computers and TVs yeah. and all the food. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you get countries that are either falling far short on the social, um, but not yet overshooting planetary boundaries or nearly doing the social, but way overshooting planetary boundaries. And nobody is in the sweet spot of meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. I posted this on Twitter the other day and I just said, well, we're all developing countries now because there is no such thing as a developed country. You can't call a country that has such a high consumption footprint that it's literally running down the living planet we depend on. We can't, you can't say that's developed. We know too much to give it, to give that name away so lightly. So I think of us as all developing countries now, but just with very different developmental trajectories to get to that sweet spot. Yes. Yes. Now, you talked about the environmental limits, and a lot of those are local, I guess, um, and, and, and uh, some are global, and particularly global warming, which has this uh, shocking and terrifying time frame, which we, we know is unfolding. Can you talk a little bit about how having a global uh, environmental boundary like that changes things? So actually, for the donor, all of the dimensions on the environmental ceiling are um, they're global indicators in terms of the climate change, in terms of ocean acidification and the ozone layer. And of course, these things have local and global impacts. But it started off as an idea of let's look at the planet's ecosystems as a whole. Of course, the challenge of the global ones is where, where does this get governed? And we have the United Nations climate change negotiations, which have been going on for more than 25 years. And what you see too much there is tit for tat between countries. You know, I'm not going to step up and do my fair share until you step up and you do your fair share. And let's have a debate about who's responsible for what and have you taken account of your historic responsibilities. But it's used as like kind of lawyers battling, sort of buying time not to do anything. So we've got real challenges that there are global resources that we share in common that we need to learn to manage. In, in a village where people share a well, and all families are dependent upon one well, well, there'll be a really intense community 
that sets up rules for how we use this well. And there will be punishments for if you misuse and pollute that well. And there'll probably be limits on how many buckets of water per family you can withdraw during drought months in the summer. So when communities are close and share an essential resource, they will manage it tightly to make sure that everybody's needs can be met and they, they don't drain that well dry. How do you do that on a global scale? where the climate we've only recently come to realize and agree is as essential as a village well in terms of the stability of the climate. Different countries impacted in different ways, different ones have long-term historic responsibility. Getting together in these very difficult um, sort of once or twice a year international meetings, we are not yet half as adept as we need to be in terms of managing our globally shared resources. And there's some really interesting work going on of trying to reimagine new forms of governance. Should we call the the, the atmosphere the, a global commons? Should we um, try to set up new different kinds of governance because the old ones aren't working? And of course, the challenge here is we haven't got much time to practice this. We need to figure it out now. Uh, and that's why, again, I come back to being an activist. No one knows where this thing is going to change from. So... Go on a mass march in your hometown if you believe that that is what you can do with your energy or let's see individual governments or individual cities often, not national government, but cities are stepping up and saying, actually, where our national government's failing, we're going to show leadership or individual states. We're seeing leadership pop up from below because those who have been appointed leaders or made themselves leaders apparently are not ready to lead. So in a way, that gives me hope too. you seeing leadership pop up from ordinary people who never realize that they'd be called to that, but they see the need for themselves to step up and lead. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And this, you're talking about this question of the commons and looking at the global commons. Well, as long as I suppose they don't come to the conclusion that what we need to do is privatise it or something, because there is that really pioneering work, is it by, by Eleanor Ostrom, which which actually, as you say, they, that, you know, we actually in many cases do very well at managing commons. You know, I know there's this this uh, famous piece of, uh, well, research or this idea of the tragedy of the commons, which turns out, of course, not to be uh, the story that was told, but actually a much more nuanced story that actually indigenous peoples local people they, they they know very well how to 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 that these are crucial questions um managing the commons and so forth and i think that's a really interesting uh, point you made now one of a great quality i think in in, in your book is, is is a vision is a positive vision and um, it's certainly something that is uh, been something of a challenge for uh, environmental thinkers or people thinking about the environment is this is is uh is is just the, the kind of doomsday scenarios and the way of negative you know and scary and, and terrifying uh, visions and this idea of being able to create a vision of a, of a positive future and what that might look like and some of the key elements and yet we live in a world and I'm just wondering about side by side we you know the question of power you know we've seen you know massive increase in the financialization of the economy massive inequality huge financial power which is you know warped institutions you know that have you know warped our, our democracy warped the global uh, organizations that are supposed to be looking at these questions where does that fit into the donut who the donuts the donut aims to lean into the wind against that power it is as you said it's a vision um sometimes when i give a presentation about donut economics and here's the new ways of the economy that are possible, someone will put their hand up at the end and say, well, that's all well and good, but you know, you haven't told me how, how about power and how are we going to get there? And you haven't told us how we're going to get there. Um, to which I'm sometimes tempted to say, 
I don't remember the Communist Manifesto coming with a step-by-step guide either, or indeed Adam Smith's, you know, Wealth of Nations or Keynes's General Theory. So ideas don't come with a, this is a vision of the future and here's a complete process of how we're going to get there. But the idea itself is part of that process. Going back to what I said about Donella Meadows saying, if you really want to have leverage, change the goal. So I'm not changing a tax rate. I'm not even changing a law. I'd like that to happen eventually. But first of all, I'm going to change what we think we're trying to do here. And if you think back to, you mentioned neoliberalism, Milton Friedman got together with fellow economists from the 1940s, but through the 50s, 60s, 70s, building the case for neoliberalism. It took them decades. It wasn't until Reagan and Thatcher came to power in the early 80s that this actually got put on the international stage. But Milton Friedman was desperately trying to bring out about a different kind of economic order. He didn't set up a political party. He talked an ideology and he made it he made it so um, compelling that it became almost picked up by every party and everything moved into the neoliberal direction because that was sort of the window of reasonable ideas had moved that way. So one part of tra- challenging power is to draw on the kind of power that those of us without major financial power have, which is the power of the masses, the power of the crowd, the power of the people, and the power of moral conviction. Because when I look at stories of how companies have changed or how policies have changed, you try and say, you know, well, why why did that why did that company why why did they really start doing something pioneering? It nearly always goes back to an individual who had a conviction and it begins sort of, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk here, banging my fingers into my chest. It begins here in the chest, in, in that space of conviction. Uh, I'm darn well going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to start bringing about a different world. So to me, that is a huge source of power. And it's the power with, the power with others. Again, I mentioned at the beginning, people massing in Parliament Square in London as part of this new movement called Extinction Rebellion, not knowing where it's going, not knowing if they'll get arrested or not, not knowing if it's going to add up to anything, but they are using the power that they know they have to start putting moral pressure on the government. The divestment movement that we've seen running throughout universities, running out throughout foundations at first, when the first university students started to ask their universities to divest from fossil fuels, it was a sort of patronizing, oh, come on, you know, be realistic. But once you start to get one or two, you build a critical mass, and then the rest don't want to be left behind. There's that fear of embarrassment um, that they start to move with you. So we should never underestimate the power of mass movements. And, you know, it's always impossible until it's done. Absolutely. And you pointed to some great, there is tremendous momentum and there is just so much happening that we we don't even know about, you know, because, because the stories are being told, because of the media, because of their interests, because of mainstream media, because of because of people's lives and, you know, attention spans. And there's just, but there is so much happening, as you say. And I, I take great uh, positive uh, sucker from the, from the B corporations and uh, looking at, you know, uh, other forms of, you know, there's great, great growth also in, in cooperatives and, 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 you know, other yeah. organizational forms that aren't, you know, the, the, the reality is actually that the corporations, certainly in America, they don't actually legally have a fiduciary role as so defined. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, people who've, pointed this out now but yet that's how the courts and particularly the court in delaware reads it but um yeah there's so much 
bubbling through and and you know the question of how these things change and particularly at a group level and uh, i guess that's something that's unfolding um as we speak um what what's on your mind now um the seven key ways of thinking uh did you when you finished the book think oh i left out two are they really important now i want to get them in in some way so and, and what's next for you what what, what 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 where are you going now kate so yeah, when I finished the book, you, you now I've, I've only ever written one book, but I know I now know that any author writing a book of this kind must feel as they hand off the final copy to the publisher, you think, I know there's something in there that I've missed or I'm going to regret, but I don't. I wish I knew which page it was on, and I and I always wondered what will what will I suddenly think? Of course, that's the eighth way. I've really enjoyed listening very open mindedly of you know what ideas are popping up, and actually going back to the comments I was making earlier about loving seeing people pick up the donut and play with it and use it and, and adopt it. I'm planning on running a competition together with Rethinking Economics, which is the fantastic international student movement calling for new economic syllabus in universities. We're going to run a competition together. I suppose I'm announcing it right now, aren't I? Uh, we're going to run a new competition together saying, okay, I set out seven ways of thinking in my book. What's an eighth way? And let's see what people come with. Because I could see seven ways, but this, you know, no one person it would be silly. Uh, this is about communities of people and people from different perspectives and different experiences seeing new things. So I want to crowdsource the answer to that question. But what I'm doing at the moment, my book first came out in April 2017. So for the last year and a half, I've been going around presenting it. And at first I thought this was just a sort of publishing wave and, you know, just do do lots of presentations and it'll calm down. It just hasn't calmed down. That gives me hope because there's a lot of interest. So I've been listening over time to the very different communities that keep coming back again and again. What, who is it who keeps wanting the donut? And I'm my next phase of work is to say, okay, how can I help make tools and resources that are available, free to download and adapt and use and, and run with it and share back with us? So some of those communities are teachers in schools and in universities how can we make resources that make it really easy for them to bring it into the classroom what about cities how could we create a city donut i talked about one for cornwall what about a, a donut tool that could be customized to individual cities so that they can see where they are and where they want to get to what about businesses i've spoken with many companies that say well yeah, how, how does this help us rethink our strategy and how could we be a company that said we're bringing humanity into the donut so what does it mean to make a tool for them um, designers, people working in the space of AI or in mobile phones, all these disruptive technologies. What happens when you pair that up with purpose? Say, so how would you use these technologies to bring humanity in the donut? What, do, you know, so many different kinds of ideas come through when you put those together. And then two more I'll mention. I'm loving the performative side of this um, and being playful with it. So running workshops for people that we actually get up in the room and try and all stand inside a large donut on the floor and how can we do it and how can we learn from that some very key insights about running the global economy. I work with a brilliant puppet maker and a musician to do a puppet rap battle, if anyone's interested, in in three student puppets taking on their economic professor, who's also a puppet, about rational economic man and challenging the theory that they've been taught. And we just did it really silly, but brilliantly uh, viral and popular as puppets having a rap battle. Why not? We should be rapping and puppeting economics. And then the very last one is, is what I what makes me feel most excited is when I see communities pick it up, like the folks in Amsterdam, like the folks in Cornwall, 
pick it up and say, come on, we're going to use this to mobilize our community. So how can I work with them to make resources and ideas and learnings from others available so that it can really be um, a tool that many can use? So that's what I'm doing. And of course, I'm doing it with lots and lots of other people because it's all about collaboration. Brilliant. I wish you the very best of success with all of that, Kate. Lots, lots on your plate. And thank you so much for um, sharing all the, your insights and the great work you've done and, and, and for your vision uh, and drive with the donut. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for your podcast. This is how ideas get shared. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.